Unorthodox with the Angry Behavior Analyst is a relief valve for stifled thoughts, theories, and opinions related to social science. Unorthodox is unfiltered, uncensored, and most importantly, uncancelable. The Angry Behavior Analyst is all triggers, no warnings. As promised, we have returned for part two with Matt Sicoria. For the first part of the Matt Sicoria series, I laid out some questions for him. For this episode, Matt turned the tables around, got in his comfortable seat, and interviewed me. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. All right, as promised, in reverse, Q&A format, Matt actually has some questions for me, which I am thrilled to answer. So Matt, wherever you want to start, I would like to think that I'm ready for you. Okay. All right. (laughs) Uh, Well, I appreciate that. And um, this is a much more comfortable role for me to be the question asker as opposed to the answerer. It's, uh, I always say that being the interviewer is the, uh, is the easy job. So. Oh, wow. I'm I'm happy to take on uh, that or retake that role. But, uh, you know, you've, you've done a number of episodes already. Uh, Kayla and um, I, I think it's probably a good time for those who aren't familiar with you know kind of who you are and what your background is is, to, is for your audience to get to know you a little bit more um, you know and I think that might help kind of place perhaps your point of view in a, in, in a, in a more accurate context and whatnot so um, you know, I, I guess first what I'd like to do is is just kind of learn a little bit more about your background uh, you know in terms of what you do in behavior analysis. I know sometimes you use behavior analysis and also clinical psychology. Um, you know, in terms, you reference both of those things as, as part of your work experiences and things like that. So w- what exactly is your background uh, in, in these areas? And, and also, uh, what, what made you want to pursue these areas, I suppose? I always say that clinical psychology was my first love because it was my first firsthand experience through therapy. I was in therapy for anorexia for a number of years, and I worked with an entire team of clinical psychologists and psychotherapists. And I think that's where my initial uh, pull to the field started was seeing how effective some of the interventions were, but also seeing a bunch of areas for improvement within clinical psychology. And I think because I've always been someone that I, I like to reform things. I like to pioneer change. I, I've never been someone that just kind of goes with the flow, I guess, if you want to say it that way. Again, not for the sake of controversy, but more just for the sake of seeing what can be improved. So when I finished treatment for anorexia, I thought that clinical psychology would be a great avenue. So my undergrad and my uh, my first master's were in clinical psychology, with a concentration being in compulsive behavior, because at that time, eating disorders, bulimia, and addiction uh, has been present in my family too, all fall under compulsive behavior. So, so it's kind of like the me search and research. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I just i i I was captivated by how my mind worked, but in this, in a way that, oh, my mind is so fascinating. I never thought it was fascinating. I thought it was just so confusing and perhaps moving forward with a more formal education about why all of these things happen the way they do would give me more insight into myself and therefore other people. 
Do you, do you mind if we just kind of pause? And if you don't want to talk about this, I completely understand, but you brought it up. Uh, yeah. you know, and so I figured it's fair game, but, uh, yeah, absolutely. What was the, uh, what was the treatment course for, uh, anorexia? I'm curious, not just to learn more about you, but I've, you know, I've had, uh, friends with children who've struggled with this. Uh, and from what I understand, it's, um, Actually, I think it's like the the uh, you know the DSM diagnosis that has the highest rate of um, death associated with it. If I'm, I heard that stat somewhere, um, yeah. but it's very very dangerous. Um, very and, very and, dangerous. And so, uh, a I'm 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 happy to to see you here and not succumbing Thank to that. Thank you. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not making light. Uh, certainly, I'm just more so just curious curious about that, and then certainly what. Um, yeah. So, what was what was the treatment like? And and yeah, I, can you talk a little bit about that? If it's if again, as long, as long as you're willing to. Of course, of course. So, what was interesting about my anorexia, particularly, was I never was severe to the point of requiring a feeding tube. So, if I imagine if I was, then I would have been in your hospitalization treatment program where you just stay there all day, and it's like an overnight. Um, time where th the time is longer. So it might be six months to a year. Although now a lot of these programs tend to be shorter. I did a partial hospitalization program where I believe it was 60 days and it was nine to five every single day. So it was about the length of going to school a little bit longer than that. And every single day there was a schedule of individual uh, sessions with a psychotherapist, there were group therapies, and then there were kind of community exposures to these situations that would be very triggering. So in behavior analysis, this might be exposure and response prevention, where they would bring us um, to a lunch area, and there would be like literal not security guards, but monitors sitting next to each of us to make sure that none of us were being sneaky with how we were hiding food or, or things like that. And that was the most difficult and agonizing part of therapy, but it was the part that also, I think, played a huge role in why I'm here. <laughs> Fascinating. How, how, old, how old were you when you, um, uh, when this started and how old were you when you kind of entered into this intensive treatment program? I was 15 and I, I did a lot of restricting. So I, I was more along the typical lines of anorexia where I was starving myself, but I was also an avid athlete. So I was exercising for hours upon hours upon hours a day. And at the time, I don't believe they, uh, they phrased that as like exercise purging, but I've heard that come along because uh, it is really common in people who also restrict food intake, but they also will exercise if they do happen to eat anything. And the exercise is excessive. It's not your typical, you know. I'm going to go for a three mile jog. Yeah. I mean, for me, that would be like, I, I just ate one M&M that that's six hours of running and then restricting for four days after that. So that was my mindset was that very extremist sort of obsessive pursuit of food. And then following the two months of the intensive treatment, there was an aftercare program where Gosh, I'm trying to remember. It was two or three times a week where I would just go in for a couple hours where the first hour would be group therapy with other girls that had uh, graduated out of that intensive treatment. And then the final hour would still be seeing a psychotherapist one-to-one. -one. I see. I see. 
And, and so you thought that the uh, exposure and response prevention was the most, uh, I guess, um, uh, impactful part of that that treatment. I would say so because the the talk therapy piece was really helpful. It was we dug into a lot of where maybe the the root of this kind of took me over and swallowed me whole and had this really strong hold on my mind, which continues to persist. I, I think people believe that they see me and no, I don't know that anybody would guess that I've struggled with this, but it's something that, that really never goes away. It's just becomes more manageable in my opinion. Um, but the talk therapy piece, again, it's kind of where, this is really helpful. I'm getting to the root of this. We're figuring out all of the variables that that contributed to the the cultivation of an eating disorder, but it's not it doesn't address the direct behavior of restricting and it doesn't address the direct behavior of my excessive exercising. So, I think that that distress tolerance and learning to separate my my thoughts from from facts because I believed that all of my fear, my thoughts and feelings were facts at that time, was at the core of compulsive any sort of compulsive behavior. I see, I see. So the talk therapy was that you know what we consider like traditional CBT, like mm-hmm. you know kind of uh, you know challenging you know uh, uh, incorrect co- you know kind of uh, cognitions, if you will, or you know what we might mm-hmm. say you know things along those lines. Okay. Yes. For those in the audience who may be, you know, not not familiar with this, you know, kind of lingo, what what would you, how would you describe this distress tolerance? I would describe it as building resilience within yourself when you encounter of things that are distressful, instead of taking the arguably easier route of escaping or avoiding things we dislike. Distress tolerance does the opposite, where you lean into things that are distressing so that you don't allow it to take power over over you. Okay. All right. So the, the you know, you're 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 foregoing the 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 old repertoire of behaviors that have perhaps a short-term kind of reward to it. Mm-hmm. Um and foregoing the uh, the 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 delaying or the um, you know the alternative repertoire that uh, mm-hmm. who, whose rewards are delayed and 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 more long term in nature. Mm-hmm. It's essentially this sounds kind of morbid. It's choosing suffering in pursuit of a greater goal. Mm, okay, that's deep, but uh, <laughs> I it think is. I get where from. <laughs> it is. <laughs> You become a deep person when you go through intensive therapy, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, You know, and again, I'm curious about this for all sorts of reasons. But again, I have a friend of mine whose daughter went through uh, this and was was actually inpatient residentially for for quite a bit of time. Thankfully, she also is, you know, came out the other end and uh, seems to be relatively healthy or, you know. Mm -hmm. But it was, uh, she, you know, she had a feeding tube. She, you know, I mean, she went the whole, you know, she went the full round. Um, so it, it, it <laughs> if someone asked me to kind of fill someone's day full of therapeutic activities in that kind of setting, I, I, I think that would be a challenge for me, not just because I'm 
you know, not trained to do that, but, you know, was there a point you were kind of like therapied out? You know, I sometimes hear about, you know, people going on these kind of retreats or these kind of like therapeutic, uh, uh, whether it's inpatient or not, it's like, you know, um, it it sounds like there's only so many things you can do quote unquote therapeutically in a, in a, in a given span of time. And you need to actually kind of go out in the world and practice and and whatnot. Yes. So can you, can you talk to that a little bit? Sure. My, I actually came to a point where um, I told my parents, I think I really need help. So it wasn't something that was forced upon me. I realized what it was doing to my personal life and my work life. I mean, I remember leaving work with an excuse so that just so that I could go exercise because some thought took over me that you're, you're, you're gaining fat, you're, you're doing all these things. And mind you, Eating disorders have very little to do with food itself. It, I, I think for me, it's very much grounded in an attempt to control and cope with whatever we're going through. And the food is just kind of this surface level um, pawn that we use in a lot of ways. So I, it's less about the food. It's more about this weird sense of if I can defy a biological need to eat, how much more powerful could I feel? Mm. And that's that's a really huge motivating driving force to keep doing it. it I mean, there's it, it sounds I realize how disturbing it sounds. But when you're in the moment and you're already I mean, these things don't just happen out of nowhere. It, it could be argued that um, I was going through a, a fair amount of stress and maybe some depression and anxiety that made me more uh, susceptible to to falling for the eating disorder trap. Um, but even though I admitted myself, essentially, even from the first week, I remember, I think it was almost every day that I would just burst into tears during group therapy. And I would tell everybody like, I just don't want to be here anymore. I'm tired of this. I'm exhausted. I've already been exhausted. I've been starving myself and, and driving myself into the ground for, for months now. I just can't take any more emotional at the time. I called it abuse being dramatic as I was. <laughs> it wasn't abuse. I mean, I, I think I was emotionally abusing myself, but that emotional abuse surely wasn't coming from anybody else in my environment. So the motivation to engage in that, I guess, repertoire of, of you know, what we might consider anorexic behavior was more out of control. Did did you experience kind of like the body dysmorphia where like, you know, you might have been super thin, but you know, when you look in the mirror, you'd be like, oh my God, I'm fat. Or, you know, uh, was that, was that, I've heard that as part of the, part of the process too. Uh, it didn't sound like you mentioned that when you were talking about the kind of derivation of this. Yeah. You know, I, I never, I think that I was grounded enough to know that I knew I wasn't fat. I knew I wasn't husky. I knew I wasn't anything. I knew I was thin. And I also knew I was muscular too because of all of the athletics that I was doing. But so it was less about looking a certain way for me. And it was the process itself of the restricting food and the exercising. And that actually shows itself in healthy ways now. For me, um, I love uh, the thrill of the pursuit of something really challenging for me is what motivates me. But then when I achieve something, it, it loses its luster almost immediately. I'm like, you know, I achieved it. What's next? <laughs> so I see. I see. 
Um, well, again, I, I really appreciate you kind of taking that unplanned digression and certainly um, talking about something that's uh, extraordinarily personal. Um, yeah, of course. Um, you know, so uh, and I'm I'm hoping that uh, that will be uh, you know it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a good model for for those who might be listening. Um, so oh, thanks thank for you. doing that. Um, of course, thank you. So that led you, that 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 kind of opened the door towards psychology for you. That like okay, I've had these kind of formative experiences. I've seen this be helpful, and at the mm-hmm. same time, you know, my own uh, you know kind of uh, internal critic uh could see how this could be this process could be improved or optimized based on my experiences do i do i have it right thus far absolutely Mm -hmm. okay cool so so you you went into psychology as as a college student i imagine and kind of went from there yes so my in my undergrad with um clinical psychology with a concentration in abnormal behavior so the more severe forms of uh, mental illness like schizophrenia and bipolar and narcissistic personality disorder and then as i went into my masters for clinical psych i thought that i would be in a good position to help people that struggled with similar issues as me but what i found was that it just it almost seemed too personal and i think that i was too biased in a lot of ways to separate or detach myself from my own experience to adequately help people with similar problems. So that's when I started taking the approach of, you know, maybe maybe I don't want to do one-to-one therapy. I'm not looking to finish this degree so that I could start a therapy practice, but I still... I've always felt like I was more of a teacher. I love to talk. I love to connect with people. But that that really heavy personal uh, talk therapy was something that I found myself moving farther and farther away from. And so it was in a lot of my clinical psychology courses. And thank God I had professors that were like this. They Almost all of their classes were discussion-based and debate-based. So that's where I started getting really interested in debating and writing. And in a few of my essays, I've I, I had professors pull me aside and say, you know, your essays, they're very full of really great information and answers all of the questions. But I feel like I'm also reading a psychological story. This might be something that you want to pursue at some point. Out of, Kayla, out of curiosity, where, where did you go to school? Um, I did my, I went to two different places for my master's. So I started off at the uh, professional school of the Chicago school of professional psychology. Sorry, jumbled that. And then that program was, I, I just, I found it to be, I didn't like the fact that there wasn't a lot of place for discussion or inquiry. Even it was just very assignment based, point based, you know, do everything as fast as you can. So I transferred to Roosevelt, which is where I met, um, one of my the best mentors I've ever had that really got me into the writing and the the diversity of thought. So, uh, was there was there a particular theoretical orientation to either of these institutions? The Chicago School was very much the program I was in was very much centered around marriage and family therapy, um, and the professors all came from different therapeutic uh, orientations. So some of them did CBT. Others, there was one that did kind of a more psychoanalytic Freudian analysis, which I personally never found interest in. 
Uh, but I was always very drawn to CBT. I loved the combination of thoughts and behavior because that's what worked so well for me in my own experience. And that was kind of the driving force for wanting to go more of a a mixed route of psychology and behavior, I, I guess, behavior analysis. But that wouldn't happen until a few years later. I see. Uh, you know, you mentioned that you kind of had a flair for debating, or at least uh, argumentation, if you will, in your in your you know kind of academic work. Did any of that precede your you know entry into college and graduate school? In other words, you know, um, did your family grow up you know like arguing about you know current events at the dinner table, or did you you know have a lot of kind of uh, you know kind of um, you know, weighty discussions with friends and stuff like that was this was this a um either a skill or an interest area that 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 existed way upstream of what you're doing these days i think i had a lot of secondhand exposure to it my dad is very forthright in how he speaks he he does not hold anything back <laughs> he's very honest and he's always been the type too that not in a way of necessarily purposely calling someone out or humiliating people, but he's he's incredibly witty and and just very quick when you speak to him. So he's also uh, very quick to kind of call things out or or spot these differences in lines of thought or controversy or what have you. And my aunt, uh, his sister, very political. So we kind of heard pieces of of how she would speak about politics, which I also was never interested at the time. I'm still not entirely interested in politics, but hearing her speak now makes a little bit more sense to me versus, you know, maybe even five years ago. I see. Uh, but as far as family goes, we never we never really debated. It was more of just my dad and my mom, for that matter, making a point to tell me exactly what I did wrong, what I need to change. And that's it. Mm. You, Kayla, you could have a rebuttal. We'll listen to it, but it's not a guarantee that just because your feelings are hurt that you are correct. <laughs> I see. I see. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Got it. All right, cool. So, so where, where did uh, behavior analysis come into the picture in your, I guess, formative time in school? Yeah, I was um, a researcher with a therapeutic day school that was connected to a psychiatric hospital. So kids, uh, not even kids, maybe late teens, early 20s, and maybe in mid 20s too, they would be admitted to the psychiatric hospital uh, for a variety of reasons, the, the reasons why anybody would be admitted to a hospital, whether that be um, a suicide attempt, suicidal ideation, or in extreme cases, it was people kind of following these very grand illusions, uh, the schizophrenic clients. And so when they were I'm laughing because the hospital would say well enough to go back to the school setting, whatever well enough means. It usually only took them about four days. Then I would go back to the school setting where the clinical psychologist would meet with each of these people that just came from the hospital setting. And we would, the three of us would work together to integrate them back into their either classroom or day program. And this, okay. And uh, were these involuntary admissions mostly? Yes. Okay. Yes. None of them actually were voluntary. I see. I see. It was, some, you... Most were court ordered, actually. Yeah. yeah. That that's a uh, that's a whole nother podcast, I suppose. <laughs> it is. It is. 
<laughs> series of series of them, I, I, I guess. But uh, uh-huh. yeah, that, that's obviously a different dynamic than um, you know someone who's actively seeking treatment and is you know way past yes. the the pre contemplative and contemplative stage of uh, seeking help. Yeah. So, uh, mm-hmm. All right, cool, cool. So uh, so you're still in the realm of mental health, not necessarily in like you know um, working with individuals with developmental disabilities, which is where most of us in quote unquote mainstream behavior analysis kind of find ourselves. So um, I guess for, you know, so, so take us forward from there. So you're working in this setting, you're helping these people kind of reintegrate towards, uh, you know, out of the hospital into more community type of placements and things like that. So, so what happens from there? What happened from there was I found that, this sparked a little something within me, a specific situation within the psych, the psychiatric ward was, uh, I love heavy metal. I love rock music. And one of the patients refused to come out of his room. And he thought that taking his blood pressure was, um, because the government was trying to keep tabs on his behavior and it was connected somehow to, uh, his, his mind and his thought stream. And so nobody could get him to come out. He was actually becoming really violent. And and it was met with a lot of psychiatric nurses saying, well, if you keep doing this, then we're just going to give you a shot of Ativan. So like make a choice. And it, that doesn't necessarily calm people down. If anything, it makes <laughs> them dig their heels in further. And I was just really bothered by that considering he was unmedicated. He clearly was insanely agitated and trying to reason with someone by threatening them doesn't seem very helpful. So I just went to the the door of his um of his room and I said, what Metallica song do you want to play? What makes sense right now? What would what would keep the government from hearing your thoughts? How how loud can we play a Metallica song was kind of how I phrased it. Uh and he chose Master of Puppets. <laughs> And it was only then that we could actually find a way to figure out, let's get to the root of why you don't want your blood pressure taken beyond your whole governmental theory. So yeah, it was kind of almost playing into his delusion a little bit just to bring us back to, okay, let's tease this apart a little bit. And I was wondering why that wasn't happening in when they were reintegrated into the school or the community. And it wasn't until I saw a BCBA in an IEP who suggested something similar that I said, who is this person? What does BCBA stand for? She's like this 60-year-old little four foot ten woman who has these crazy interventions that I feel like I didn't learn in clinical psychology. And she told me her background. So in typical Kayla fashion, I went for another degree. <laughs> Back to your heavy metal guy. Uh, yeah. Did, did you get any uh, pushback from the staff, even though it sounds like it was an effective intervention? They were like, what the hell are you doing? Like- yes, every single one of them. And then at the end of the day, I actually got written up because they told me that I was creating an unsafe environment. I see. So even though he came out and, and received the, 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 the uh, prescribed medication and uh, yada, mm-hmm. yada, yada. Okay. Got it. I mm-hmm. can see how that would be a formative uh, experience in its own right. So, yeah, and I think maybe that was part of it for me too. Was any is anything outside of the textbook cookie cutter considered unsafe? What what, what is the version of unsafe? Then is it just that we don't like it, or is it actually unsafe? Because mm. I'm willing. 
if I did put anybody in an unsafe environment, I would love to know, but I was given no evidence that that was the case. So I don't I know. See. I see. Uh, so, so, uh, so you, you, you found behavior analysis and, and sounds like you kind of jumped in, uh, head first. Uh, so what was it about that? I mean, it sounds like you found that, you know, you connected with this person, you saw some interventions that perhaps appeal to your sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where did you, uh, where did you end up getting, uh, your education in behavior analysis and what were some of your early job experiences? I got my education from the Chicago school of professional psychology. Okay. Yeah. So I, I went back to my old stomping grounds, if that's how you want to phrase it. And to my dismay, and this isn't regarding because of any specific population, but more so because of my own interests, I was expecting that I would be able to play a part in um, developing college courses and, and teaching college courses as an adjunct faculty or something like that. And then if I were to use my BCBA credential, it would be in more of a consulting format as the woman who inspired me to go through with behavior analysis. But as we've many of us have probably experienced, when you pass the exam, most of the opportunities available are with autistic populations, specifically very young autistic populations. So my first experience was entirely in home. That didn't last long because there was just a, a big drive for hours and the the revolving door of therapy and, and BCBAs. And from there, I kind of dabbled in therapeutic day schools. So going back to a place where I worked after my clinical psych degree, um, and then I went to an agency setting. So I've kind of been in your more typical type of roles, and none of them felt like uh, they weren't entirely aligned with what I thought I would be doing. Okay. Okay. So what is it that you're you're doing these days? You know, and um, I think in some of your other episodes or your you know kind of uh, Instagram stories, you reference you know my business this, my business that. So what what is what is your business, if you don't mind, kind of yeah. take a moment to elaborate on that. Yeah. So my business is Canvas Behavior Consulting, and we started off with wanting to do parent training and parent consulting only, and we worked with. Uh, a few families more regarding the the parents' own insecurities around parenting and their own barriers to maybe um, not all, I, I hate to say laying down the law or or implementing some form of discipline, but there were a lot of assertiveness skills training and a lot of negotiation skills training that we worked on in the beginning because some moms, for example, um, had a really hard time asserting themselves at work and that trickled into trouble asserting themselves with their children. So that was primarily what we did with parents. So it wasn't your typical form of, or or maybe it is typical, I'm not sure. Um, It it wasn't what you typically see, I guess, with uh, parent training in like an agency format. Right. So you weren't trying to train the parents to, you know, uh, develop and further, you know, prompt and reinforce verbal operants. You were Correct. trying to coach them on how to, you know, um, uh, reward more appropriate behaviors, but also set limits. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah, okay, I get it. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. we, we need we need more of that for sure. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's really 
it's surprising the impact that you see because we see so often that uh, really sometimes overly prescribed hours are um, at the core of many companies and, and agencies. And, and in many cases, that's warranted. So that I completely understand that. But with these specific families, I only met with them once a week for one hour a week for eight to 10 total weeks at a time. And the complete turnaround and even their kids' behavior, even though I never directly worked with the children, uh, was pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's 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 uh, that's good to hear. Um, how how uh, how did the parents kind of access your services? Was this kind of a a private pay model, or were they referred to you through like an agency that uh, that these people were seeking support from, or what was? Uh, and I'm again, I'm being all sorts of nosy here, so you could you know at any no, you could say none fine. of your business, but uh, you know, I'm just this is you know um, sure. This is a need where I think uh, I, I would love to see more behavior analysts kind of jump into and, and, and fill. Sure, I agree. So that's why I'm so I'm eager to talk about it. We started off entirely private pay. And the way that people found us was I had one family, they're probably listening right now. So hi, guys, <laughs> who really believed in me. And they uh, followed me through a couple of agencies before coming to my private practice. And we worked together and we were at a school event. And I forget exactly how people came up to me, but a bunch of parents, I think, saw me either talking to the family or the child or talking about what I do. And there really was this huge onslaught of parents that had never heard about this before, because mind you, these also weren't parents of kids with special needs. It was just kids in a mainstream private school type of setting that maybe hadn't had exposure to behavior therapy or even cognitive behavioral therapy. So it kind of took off pretty quickly just from word of mouth. And as I was finishing up the course of treatment with the, we started off with six, six families, six or seven families within like a four week period. Um, so it was busy. It's kind of like a, like a, like a nanny nine one one type of situation. In other words, yes. family without, <laughs> I, 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 I kind of hesitated to make that analogy because the, the, the those shows were kind of, oh, I, perhaps in some cases over sensationalized for the purposes sure. of television entertainment. So I'm not yes. making that connection to kind of belittle the, the, the professional activities you engaged in. But I think the, there is part of that analogy that sounds pretty appropriate as well. And that, uh, yes. you know, these are sounds like people without any type of uh, major developmental or uh, other type of disability. And the, they were, you know, the kids were, running the show and you help the parents kind of, uh, you know, turn things around. Is that, is that fair to say? It is. And it's so funny, Matt, that you bring up that analogy because within the setting, uh, that I was working in between these families, they called me the scientific super nanny. I see. <laughs> so it kind of, it was very fitting. I didn't take any sort of offense to it. I thought it was okay. very accurate. Yeah, that's, so. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. You know, uh, those shows have been off the air for a while, so you might need to put some uh, some some uh, Wikipedia or IMDb links in the show notes for those who, no might, who might have no idea what we're talking about. No uh, kidding. Who's Super Nanny? Well. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. So, um, is that a TikTok? Uh, no, it, uh, is that an app? <laughs> uh, so, anyway, um, 
I'm showing my age here. I'm so sorry. Uh, but uh, all right, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, you know, and I think uh, there's so much of a need out there for folks to work with parents to help them. I, I you know, I, I think, I think, you know, parent, parenting, they, you know, mm-hmm. there, there's so many, um, so many societal messages that, that, that young parents receive. Uh, and it's, um, and again, I like to use the term set limits and not, you know, cause when you start, when one starts using terms like hold accountable or other sorts of things that, you know, yes, those are, those are technically precise, but sometimes they throw off a connotation that, you know, people are being overtly harsh or, um, you know, or what have you. But, um, yeah, I, I think, I think there's a, a, a reluctance to set reasonable limits with, with children. Um, you know, we just, I guess while we're on the topic, one of the things I see a lot is, um, and again, I, I see this through the eyes of my own, not, well, I guess somewhat of my professional practice, but in terms of my own child rearing, one, one rule that we have that's ironclad in our household. And I have, as I mentioned, I have three teenagers, um, but there's, there's, there's no phone uh, or electronic device uh, in the bedroom during sleeping hours. Like you can go up there and like do your homework on your Chromebook or you can go up there and watch your, your reels and whatnot, you know, um, you know, during waking hours, but all, all three of our kids, their phones are downstairs and plugged in, um, when they go to bed. Good for you. Um, (laughs) it's something, and I, yeah, and I, I, I'm not taking credit for that. That's all, that's all my wife's idea. And, um, and it's something that, uh, it's just, it's just become normalized. It's in, in our household. And usually when I'm talking with parents who are having difficulties with their kid, that's the first, first thing I ask is, uh, you know, if they're of the age where they have phones and who the hell knows what that means. These, you know, <laughs> there's, exactly. The age seems to be getting younger and younger, uh-huh. uh, you know, so, uh, Absolutely. as I, as I sound like old man yelling at clouds here, but you know, my first question is like, where's their, <laughs> Where is their phone at night? You know, where is mm-hmm. their phone sleep? If it's in their room, or if they have a TV or Xbox in their room or something like that, same same principle applies, uh, or iPad or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, uh, you'd be surprised that uh, you know. I mean, my kids are old enough now that like the entire household kind of goes to bed within like a half an hour of one another. But when they were younger and they would go to bed earlier. Or if it's uh, on an occasion, my wife and I are up a little bit later, maybe watching a movie or something like that downstairs in the living room. Uh, you can hear their phones getting pinged. You know, does it drive I, you crazy? Yeah, you know. Well, I, I mean, I, it did it. It did it at first, and I think I think their friends, you know, kind of got trained to, you know, <laughs> that. They're unavailable. Yeah, this is a, basically those those responses extinguished. Uh, you know, so mm-hmm. we, we see it less these days, and I think we also see it less because we're also going to bed. You know around the same time yeah or maybe just slightly later but um yeah you know there's so many there's so many uh teens who are completely dysregulated and um you know they're on their phone all night and there's the 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 correlation between those things and just you know um you know poor mental health and things like that seems to be anecdotally at least off the charts uh and and i have friends who you know kind of don't abide by the Sequoia rule of no phones in the bedroom at night. Um, and, 
you know, and yet are, are, are concerned about their kids' well-being and stuff like that. And, they, and, and, and it, it would seem like saying, hey, just do this is like a bridge too far. You know, yeah. so mm-hmm. I, I, I it's it's just uh, not to go on a tangent here, but it just seems like it's one of those <laughs> things where it's it's such a low piece of low hanging fruit. Um, it's a warranted tangent. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, I'm sorry for taking us off off uh, off off topic here for a little bit, but that sounds like that's don't a, worry about an, it. It's an important uh, it's an important service. So I'm hoping other people listening to this get inspired to branch out and see if there's a a marketplace in their community where they can provide services in, in this uh, uh, in this area. You know, if they feel like they're adequately trained to to do so. Um, but yeah, there just seems to be such a reluctance for 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 parents to set limits in man, in many respects. It's 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 hard. Um, you know, and I think it's one of those things. The more you wait to do it, the harder it is to, you know. So and historically, from a lot of uh, clinicians too, I hear that the parent training piece is something that they dread the most because it's a lot. I don't know if it's, I'm sure it happens for a bunch of different reasons, depending on the person, but the most common thread I've heard is that they just feel like they're able to connect more with say a tech or an RBT versus, because there isn't that pressure of that responsibility in some ways for the child versus the parent, uh, rightfully so, has their eyes on the, the BCBA or the therapist. So there is almost this feeling of, oh, I, I must uphold uh, my my therapy and uphold my values to the, to these people and prove to them that what I'm doing is effective. And a lot of people can take it very personally, including myself when I started, if things didn't work, or if an intervention I tried uh, was not successful, I would take it really personally. And then I would internalize all of my insecurities around, well, what if they think I'm incompetent? What if they think I'm not doing my job well? They're paying out of pocket for this. Do they think it's a complete waste of money? So I think that could play a role too in why people tend to shy away from the parent training part. I see. I see. So, um, <clears throat> Does that still remain as as kind of like a a, a staple part of your uh, your 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 practice these days? Hardly. Uh, okay. I have yeah. So I have one family that um, I'm working with now, and then mostly what I've been doing is speaking engagements. So working with school districts um, and universities, trying to present kind of a wide array of topics, but it's been more about the development of my nonprofit, which is primarily centered around reforming the entire supervision or practicum experience for clinicians that integrates how to um, make sure you're fostering an environment where viewpoint diversity is, is a norm and constructive debate, constructive conversation, and learning how to play devil's advocate. And then there's also little pieces of entrepreneurial skills in there too for clinicians who want to do something different than, say, uh, working with the autistic population in an agency setting. Very cool. Um, uh, so, so what made you want to create this uh, media empire, if you will, that you're this, uh, the developing media empire of the uh, – uh, of your podcast, your Substack, and and you know, of course, the uh, the Instagram, yeah, uh, channel. So, um, what what was uh, what was the motivation to do that? What what was um, what was that thing that uh, 
you just had to put out to the masses. Yeah. What was that about? I think I spent so many years making sure that I honed in on these skills and I don't want to say perfected these skills cause I'm nowhere near perfect with, um, with having difficult conversations or, or debating or what have you. But I spent so much time making sure that these skills uh, were solid in a person-to-person setting or in a group setting. And I, I didn't want to start on social media as my launching point for learning how to do this. So I felt like it was after I felt very confident in my skills of presenting my thoughts in, in a cogent manner and proving myself to be someone that is very open to being proven wrong and having these really hard discussions, I thought, how can I expand my reach? Because my reach within a town that's a suburb of Chicago is not, it's just not expanding the way that I would want it to. And that's where I I also became a little stuck too, was I wanted to move away from solely the, the parent training staple and move towards things that my ringing in my head was what my college professor said was consider psychological uh, journalism um, and these creative outlets. So I felt like I'm actually a little bit late to the social media game in some ways because, I mean, I'm 31 and I just started this Instagram page what was it, six, seven months ago? So that, I mean, I don't know. I feel like sometimes I'm carving messages into a stone tablet. (laughs) Um, But I found that on social media, of course, this isn't a surprise. There's a total lack of nuance that that we get to experience when I do these things in person. So that's where I moved more into. Maybe a podcast will do a better job of helping people realize that I'm not quite as blunt and maybe even seemingly cutthroat on social media. And maybe uh, my Substack and my writing will allow people to the time to digest so that they could think before they react so quickly. I see. So relative to these kind of media endeavors, what what are some of the responses that you've gotten? You're obviously taking on topics that are you know, uh, that, that are controversial, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and topics that, that other people, you know, kind of don't want to talk about or only want to talk about in a, in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious to hear what the, uh, the feedback has been. It has surprisingly been overwhelmingly positive. That's not to say it's a hundred percent positive. I, I do get emails and messages with some people that, um, that are upset or that disagree or that honestly have been just very cruel in a lot of ways. But those compared to the amount of the really positive or supportive emails and and messages and calls that I get are very, it's very small. So, which is, it surprised me. I was actually expecting to get a little bit more flack for my opinions. And even people say sometimes you must just get so much shit for the, for the things that you say. And I say, you know, surprisingly, I, I don't. <laughs> I, I think when we first spoke that I think that was probably my first question uh, because yeah. I, I had the same 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 curiosity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you had people say, "Hey, Kayla, you know, I I disagree with your point of view on this, but um, I I think I understand where you're coming from, even though I don't arrive at the same conclusion." Have you had any kind of like uh, like I don't know, for lack of a better term, kind of like uh, some principled, nuanced disagreement. 
I've had more of those than the ad hominem arguments. Oh, so thank, thank goodness. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It's it, and especially recently where I've been trying to do more work in the stories of me literally just coming on video and talking. I think that has helped uh, lend a hand to a lot more of these constructive disagreements versus just putting a bunch of words out there because I I can tend to write in a very blunt way. So, but when you, if I read it out loud, it, it wouldn't be said in this kind of rude, snarky type of style. So I think that's where it gets lost a little bit. I see. The, you know, if if any of those people are game, that would be a that would be an interesting podcast to listen to. Not to, uh, you know, not 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 to be editorialize here too much, but uh, you know, just I, because I think that would be a good model about how people from differing perspectives who arrive at different conclusions on a particular issue can have a, a conversation that is um, that avoids the ad hominems and the other you know kind of logical fallacies and name calling and and that sort of thing and and really focus on trying to come to some sort of understanding of a complex phenomenon so I agree and you know it's funny Matt I that was actually one of the what I wanted to be the meat and potatoes of this podcast was just opposing viewpoints and bringing us together to talk about it. But it's been incredibly hard to find people that are willing to do so. Even the ones that I've had these really constructive civil discourses with, um, I still do not have any takers for publicly having this conversation, which goes back to my initial point of being able to do it really efficiently on Instagram or th- via texting or typing is an entirely different skill set from doing this in person. And maybe that's the resistance to being able to articulate your thoughts the way you and me are versus doing so in a in a text-to-text format. I see. Um, I, I know we've been chatting for a while, and uh, but I've just got a couple more questions for you, Kayla. Um, yeah. W- uh, and, and maybe these two questions are, are, are kind of different ways of saying the same thing, but, um, you know, there's this, there's this concept of audience capture, uh, that, that, that's out there. And a lot of these kind of new media formats, uh, and for those who aren't kind of familiar with the concept, I guess my interpretation of what audience capture means is that when you find something that resonates with your audience and gets a reaction uh it 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 has the tendency to influence your topic selection and your your overall discourse to co- continue to play that hot hand if you will right you know so on my podcast you know uh t- t- you know like uh, there's certain there's certain guests for example that get tons and tons and tons of of downloads uh, more than others and and you know, there's a tendency to like, if I had that guest all the time, you know, that yeah. I, I could see where that would be a, a very alluring thing to do. Right. Cause sure. it, cause it, uh, um, it gets reinforced. Uh, those choices get reinforced by the reactions of the audience, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm curious because you, you, you have this kind of contrarian um, brand almost, if you will. I, and I'd be curious to see if you're, you're, if if you think brand is is a fair fair way to describe that or not, but um, you know, do you worry about audience capture? You know, in other words, if you you know if you talk about you know um, topic X or topic Y that is 
really hot and 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 uh, uh, hotly debated in today's you know kind of sure. conversations. You know, um, do you worry about that sort of the audience capture aspect of that? That you become like the oh, I'm the uh, I, I I'm the neurodiversity critic podcast. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I would be lying if I said that I wasn't sometimes tempted by it. So especially it's not helpful either on Instagram where it will literally show you things like this post is performing 95% uh, yeah. better. And so my first thought might be, oh, gosh, should I be posting more of this? But then I know the reasons why I'm doing all of these things. And I know that many might see me as someone I've even heard it actually. People say you're just being annoying on purpose, or you're just asking these annoying questions a on purpose. Rouser, uh, to use yeah, the I, word. <laughs> a ruffian, right. an emotional ruffian. In case, um, in case anyone was confused at my age, I just uh, you know just cleared that up with uh, with that term. Yeah. So anyway, everyone, are you on par? Matt just confirmed his age. <laughs> okay, right. we're we're good. That's that's perfect. I, so I I'm certainly not trying to be a provocateur on purpose. My intention was never to say I can't wait to anger as many people as possible. I can't wait to ruffle feathers. <laughs> I, <laughs> but your your IG handle is the angry behavior analyst. I know, and I think the reason for my my name was I thought it was funny because. Sometimes how I talk, I, I'm very sarcastic. So I I can come across like, is she angry or is she actually just being sarcastic? Is she trying to make a joke or does she just have like a dark sense of humor? So I thought, you know what? It's kind of catchy. Uh, I can be a little bit of um, a spark plug when it comes to certain issues. So that'll be the name. Um, and perhaps it, it, this could also be on me on social media. I could do a better job of maybe including more things because I do agree with a lot of mainstream ideals too. It's not always me saying, oh, this is popular. Let me make sure that I debunk it for people. <laughs> so Adam's Adam ruins everything, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Just like an like inherent buzzkill. <laughs> uh, I'd hate for my brand to be a buzzkill. Um, but I think because again, I, I just, I became so fluent and confident in my beliefs and being proven wrong that I'm not worried that my brand is going to swallow my identity. So it serves more the place of me of, of saying, this is a form of a fact checking for me. This is a form of, so, so to kind of answer your question in this really long winded way, sorry about that. I guess to avoid audience capture or the lure of what's popular, um, there are those people that that do disagree with me, that do prove me wrong, that do send me a bunch of resources and things that definitely nullify a lot of thoughts that I have. And I think that's been really helpful for me in terms of um, what I choose to put out there and what I choose to keep to myself. That's awesome. Uh, well, I, I think, you know, to that point, you know, it'd be interesting to come back in like a year or so and reflect like, yeah. what are the, uh, what are the positions I, I, that I had in mm -hmm. October of 2022 that I still have now where, mm -hmm. where what, have, what have my opinions changed? Uh, you know, uh, there's a, um, there's a podcast I listen to, uh, where the host talks about, uh, all sorts of things. It's, it's a health kind of related podcast. It's called the drive with Peter Atia. It's really good. Mm -hmm. Um, and he has this saying, you know, um, strong opinions, lightly held, 
uh, yeah. you know, so I love that. that yeah, actually, isn't that cool? That's a really succinct, poignant way of putting it. Yeah. So, so yeah. anyway, so yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll, I'll put a note in the calendar to come back in a year and uh, listen to, you know, catch up <laughs> on some episodes. So, no, I listen to when they come up, but I'll, I'll you know, be interesting to hear what, uh, you know, what, if, to the extent to which some of your 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 takes have changed or not. But uh, in the meantime, um, thanks for letting me turn the tables on you and ask some questions. And uh, it's been it's been great to learn a little bit more about your background. Uh, and I especially appreciate, you know, kind of going into the, 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 the vulnerable aspects of that, that you discussed, uh, at the early part of that conversation. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for your thoughtful questions and creating a conversation where I feel comfortable enough to do so. So I appreciate that. And you know what, on that note, Matt, I really appreciate you coming on any quick tidbits before we go. Tidbits in terms of like uh, a one-liner, a one-liner. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, get a hobby. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Not you, like that would be, you know, you know. That's a uh, good one. Unsol- in terms of unsolicited advice, uh, yeah, really yeah. Get, get a hobby that doesn't involve media or or behavior analysis. That would be the, the you know, do, get get obsessed about something fun. So mm-hmm. that would be that about that about covers it. Matt, thank you so much for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Caleb. <laughs>